Well, this morning we are continuing in our series, Align, a church aligned with God's will. And this morning we are in Revelation still. Uh, We're in chapter 2, and we're looking at the church of Pergamum. Uh, The church of Pergamum, which begins in verse 12. So Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, is where we're at this morning. So a church aligned with God's will um, is our series. And this morning we're going to learn that they do not tolerate false teaching and immorality. And so if you found your place, join or look look with me in the text at verse 12. Uh, He says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning, this opportunity to gather together as your church to open your word and to learn from it, God. And this morning as we walk through this text, help us to learn what what you have us to learn from it, Lord, to apply what you have us to apply to our lives both individually and corporately as a church. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear your message to the churches so that we might apply them to our life in our church. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's well, the year 1556? Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, the, the one who wrote the book of Common Prayer is He's the one who sought to to turn turn the Church of England more Protestant. He's seated in an Oxford cell before a plain wooden desk. He's weary from months of trial and and interrogation and and imprisonment. And while he found support under Edward VI, Queen Mary is now reigning. She's the queen. Mary was a, a devout Catholic. And when she came to power, her government began to to relentlessly search out and to get rid of all of those who were Protestants. And Cranmer, being a a major proponent of Protestantism, had been sentenced to be burned at the stake. While he stood firm for many, many years, on on February 26th of that year, he signed a, a recantation. The 67-year-old Cranmer, he was exhausted mentally, emotionally, physically. Some suggest that he was even suffering from a heart condition. His biographers write, After the miserable history of brainwashing and interrogation in the 20th century, we are better placed to understand the sort of pressures to which Cranmer had been subjected. After many years of pressure, it had gotten to him. He ended up acknowledging the Pope, 
transubstantiation, the seven sacraments, purgatory, and he repented of previous beliefs. He took the mass. In all, he signed six recantations. He recanted hoping to avoid the stake. He was convinced that, that if he just capitulated, he would not be killed. He would not be burned and said he would be pardoned. Having signed the recantations in private, he was then to, to publicly recant at the university church. But instead of reading the prepared manuscript before the congregation that morning, he goes off script and he denounced all of his recantations. He affirmed the, his Protestant teachings before the entire congregation and then he was immediately dragged out of the church and off to the stake he went. And having signed those six recantations with his right hand, history reveals that he held his hand, his right hand, in the fire while repeating the, these words as long as he could. My unworthy right hand, this hand hath offended, and Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. While Cranmer eventually came to his senses. He stood firm against the Catholic Church and, and paid the ultimate price. For a short time, he did capitulate in an attempt to save his life. And if you were in Cranmer's shoes, you, you may have done the same. Interrogation experts say that everyone has their cracking point. Cranmer's interrogators found his. Would they, would they find yours? Would you even be able to last as long as he did? Three years of intense pressure. While we would all like to think that, that we would not break, that, that we would not cave, the truth is we don't know. Kramer was a, a faithful servant of the Lord, but after several years of intense persecution, of intense torment, he capitulated. Now, thankfully, Kramer's story does not end with him capitulating. By the grace of God, Kramer recanted his, his recantations. He, he stood firm for Christ and he ended up paying the ultimate cry, price. The work the Lord that, 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 that the work that the Lord began in Kramer, he, he finished. He completed. Philippians 1:6 tells us that God will do that. And if you're a believer, the same will hold true for your life as well. God will, will complete the work that He first began in you. He will bring you all the way through so that you will enter into His heavenly kingdom. God, through the Apostle Paul, makes a, a wonderful promise to us in the latter portions of the book of Romans. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 35, we read this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what a wonderful promise that God gives us there. The work that the Lord began in you, He will complete in you. Nothing will separate you from His love. And while that is an amazing promise, the, the temptation to, to capitulate is real. 
The church to which Jesus writes this week has capitulated, as, as we'll find out. They, they haven't fully renounced Christ as their, their Lord and as their Savior, but, but they have capitulated to a certain degree to the culture in which they live. They have capitulated by allowing false teachers and immoral people to continue in the church, which raises the question, how should a church that is aligned with God's will deal with false teaching and immorality? The church to which Jesus writes this week is a church at Pergamum. So look at verse 12 with me. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now Pergamum was a wealthy university city. They, they, were, they, were, they were highly intellectual. Uh, there were wealthy people in Pergamum. The library alone there had over 200,000 volumes, which, which is a lot for this day. They also were a technology hub and a, and a manufacturing city. They invented and they manufactured parchment when the supply of papyrus from Egypt was no longer able to come through. But probably more interesting and more significant for our study this week is the Pergamum served as the center of religious life in the province. There was a hill that was over a thousand feet above sea level on which temples of numerous gods were, were built. And throughout biblical history, people would take to these hills to worship the Lord. They believed that this is the place where, where the divine and the human overlapped. And so, so people would take to these hills, people would build altars and, and temples on these hills. And, and this was true in the city of Pergamum. The city, the citizens of Pergamum worshiped the God of healing. Aslepios, the, the hope of healing actually drew people from all over the region to that city to worship that God. They also worshiped Zeus and Athena and Dionysus, as, as well as the first temple that was dedicated to, to Caesar was built there. Pergamon was a highly, highly religious city. And Pergamon was a difficult place for Christians. As Christians, we don't worship other gods. We call Jesus alone God. We are to have no other Lord and Savior besides him. And here are these Christians. They're living right there in the middle of, of Roman religious life, university life, technological life. In some sense, it would be like living in San Francisco or, or Silicon Valley. And on the one hand, the church at Pergamon is, is right where they need to be. The church at Pergamon was what was in an advantageous situation. They're right in the middle of everything. They had the ability to speak into the culture and call those that, that are around there that were worshiping these other gods to worship Jesus alone as their Lord and as their, as their Savior. The only one who could, who could truly provide for their daily needs. The only one who could truly provide them with hope and sustain them. They had the ability to do that right there in the middle of everything. Timothy Keller, who is known for his ministry in New York City, says in his book, Center Church, the early church was largely an urban movement that won the people of the Roman cities to Christ, while most of the rural countryside remained pagan. Because the Christian faith captured the cities, however, it eventually captured the ancient Greco-Roman world. As the city went, so went the culture. Why? Well, the urban elites were, of course, important, but, but the Christian church did not focus on them alone. Then as now, the cities were filled with poor and urban Christians. And an urban Christians' commitment to the poor was visible and striking. Through the cities, Christians changed history and culture by winning the elites as well as by identifying deeply with the poor. You see, the city is an important place in which 
to do ministry. You, you can capture the culture of the area. You can capture the culture of the nation through the cities. I mean, think about LA or New York or Dallas-Fort Worth or, or Houston. Each of these cities has its own culture. It affects the surrounding regions and some even affect the nation as a whole. Cities are important, particularly as people move from the countryside to to the cities. And so on the one hand, we see that that the church of Pergamum is is in an advantageous situation. It is in a place where, where they can bring about true change to the culture. But on the other hand, the Christians in Pergamum are living in a difficult place. The culture of the city is is not ambivalent to idolatry at all. Those who live in Pergamum are given to idolatry. They are committed to worshiping idols. And not only did the people of the city talk about the gods and worship them on a weekly basis, but but there was this huge hill in the region right there. Everybody could could see it and, and temples dotted that hill. As well as there was this massive huge altar to Zeus that that jutted out near the top of the mountain for all to see in the area. Pergamon was the first place to build a temple to the Caesar. Caesar Augustus allowed them to build a temple to his name so that people might worship him there. All this meant that, that out of all of the cities that Jesus writes to here, the church in Pergamon was the one most likely to deal with the imperial cult. They were the church that was most likely to be pressured into worshiping other gods. They were the church that was most likely to be tempted to participate in the moral practices that were associated with idol worship. And while Christians were right where they needed to be, they were in a very difficult place, one that was adverse to Christianity flourishing. And though these Christians lived in a difficult place, Jesus expects Christians to stand firm despite cultural pressure. Again, look at the text beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He recognizes, Jesus admits that the church is, is, is literally living right in the place where, where Satan dwells. It is the, the center of pagan worship in this day, and he calls it the very throne room, the very throne of Satan. It is located here in Pergamum. It's an evil, wicked city. I'm sure a lot of demonic activity is taking place in Pergamum. Not only is the city pagan through and through, but, but Pergamon has also been the location of intense persecution. Now, little, little is known of this, this man that Jesus mentions here, Antipas, but later biographers record that, that he was slowly roasted to death in a brazen bowl during the reign of Domitian. And even though the church witnessed the death of, of Antipas, how he was slowly roasted. I mean, could you imagine seeing this happen right before your eyes and knowing that that could be you? Even though that happens, the church holds fast. They hold firm for Christ. And Jesus commends them for this. Jesus commends them for for standing firm, for not denying the faith, for not renouncing him as their Lord and as their Savior. And while commending them for their faithfulness, though, Jesus warns the church. While the Romans were able to, and they did, they they wielded this this sword of of judgment, Jesus makes it clear that he has a sharp two-edged sword as well. In doing so, Jesus is setting up this contrast between himself and, and, and the Romans. 
Those in Pergamum, they, they would naturally fear the Romans. They would naturally fear, fear the sword of judgment that, that the Romans could, could, could wield against them, that they could lead to death if they did not participate in these pagan idolatrous practices, if they did not worship other gods, if they did not worship the emperor. But Jesus tells them that they should fear his judgment to a greater degree. Jesus will not only judge the Romans, Jesus will judge all of the other nations. He will also judge those who practice immorality and choose to worship him, him along other, alongside other gods. When you worship another god beside or, or even alongside of, of Jesus, you are breaking the first of the two Ten Commandments. Right. In Exodus 20, beginning in verse 2, Jesus says, or God says this, excuse me, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Worshiping other gods is, is forbidden. You shouldn't worship another God in place of Jesus, nor should you worship another God alongside of, of, of Jesus. God alone is the one who provides us with redemption. No other God is capable of providing true salvation. I mean, God drew the, the nation of, of Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus event. Jesus has come and Jesus has died for us on the cross for our sins. He alone is the one who has resurrected from the grave. He alone is the one who ascended to the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling and sustaining this world. He alone is the one who is able to provide us with redemption. We are not to worship any other gods before him. We shouldn't practice immorality, nor should we worship any gods alongside of Jesus. To do so is to invite Jesus's judgment on us. While the church had stood firm, even in the midst of intense persecution, while, while they had not renounced Jesus as their, their Lord and as their Savior, they were, not in faith, they were not entirely faithful to Jesus. Some in the church have been swayed by false teachers who worship other gods. Others in the church are, are practicing immorality. And as a result, Jesus comes and he rebukes the church. And Jesus' rebuke here teaches us that a church aligned with God's will cannot be indifferent to false teaching and immoral acts. Look at the verse, look at the text beginning in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now we learn from Jesus' rebuke that the church had some who held to the teaching of Balaam as well as some who held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And if you remember, we, we looked at uh, the church of Ephesus, the beginning of chapter two there, and we saw that, that the Nicolaitans were, were active in that area as well, but, but that church actually opposed the Nicolaitans. They, they hated the work of the Nicolaitans and Jesus commends them for that. But the church at Pergamum, they, they did not do that. And the Nicolaitans, as we discovered then, were a cult who practiced sexual immorality and, and hosted idolatrous feasts. They could have possibly been a cult that, that, that 
that perpetuated emperor worship. As well as some of them held to the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam is the, is the character uh, from Numbers who Balak hired to come and, and to curse Israel while they were in the wilderness. And, and we know that, that God intervened and he did not end up cursing them. Instead, he ended up blessing them instead. But, but if you keep reading there in Numbers, you see that in, in Numbers 25, it, it, was, it was Balaam who, who counseled Balak to, to give the Moabite women to the Israelites so that they might then participate in idolatry. And this is exactly what happened. The Israelites, tempted by the Moabite women, they, they participated in sexual morality and idolatry. And so, so while they were not cursed that day, they, they were still led astray. And they were still not worship, they were not worshiping the Lord alone. And that began to put a stumbling block in, in the nation. A difficulty there. In the case of of Pergamum, the church has allowed false teachers to influence the congregation, false teachers who, who have led them to, to capitulate to the culture along with, with worshiping Jesus. Members of this church at Pergamum, they, they also went and they, they participated in this idol worship. They, they were continuing to participate in these immoral acts that were a part of the, the idol worship. They, and they did this to, in, to avoid the, the sword of Rome, to, to avoid Rome's judgment. You see, they had a little bit of, they had a lot of Jesus maybe, but then they sprinkled a little bit of this stuff in and that, that satisfied the Romans. They, they were not going to go after them. They saw them at the, at the feast. They, they saw them at, at these temples worshiping and they thought they were good. The indifference of the church to these false teachers and its members' immoral actions though was, was concerning. Jesus says to the church in verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And Jesus calls the church to repent. You see, even if you do not practice idolatry yourself, even if you do not compromise, even if you are not in sin, but you allow false teachers and you allow immoral people to remain in the congregation, if you allow these people to be led astray, if you allow people to remain unconfronted in their sin, you are in sin yourself and you need to repent. When we don't take action, we are complicit. We, just like those who practice false teaching and immoral acts, deserve Christ's judgment. Now that might sound unreasonable, but, but Jesus' words in verse 16 highlight the corporate nature of the church. Because our society is, is, is individualistic, we, we've, been, we've been brought up to believe that, that we worship, that, that the church and that, that living for Christ is, is really mainly just this individual activity that we do. We forget that each of us make up a, a part of the body. Parts, though, individual are connected to form one body. Paul uses this illustration when he's speaking to the Corinthians. Right. And think about it. When you have an infection in your finger, what, what happens? Does just like some cells in your finger start launching an attack against that? No. Your entire body launches a, a, an attack against this infection. If it doesn't, the infection is going to spread. It's going to cause damage to, to other parts of your body. This is why if people are, are diabetic, if they're, if they're paralyzed, if they constantly be checking their limbs to make sure there's no cuts, to make sure there's no infections. If you don't, if you have an infection and you, you leave this effect, infection unattended, well, what's going to happen? Things are going to get bad. 
And, and if you continue to ignore the situation when things are, are bad, things are going to go from, from bad to worse and possibility that, that you might actually die from it. I know that's an extreme, but, but that is a possibility if just completely left alone. And while we're all individual believers, we all take together and make up the body of, of Eastridge Baptist Church. And so if someone is, is teaching false doctrine, if, if someone is worshiping idols, if they're living in unre- unrepentant sin, then, then we, don't, we don't turn a blind eye to that. We shouldn't say or we shouldn't think, I am not worshiping idols. I am not a false teacher. I'm not living in unrepentant sin. I'm good. No, no. Jesus says that the church that allows false teachers, idolaters, and unrepentant sinners to continue in its midst unchecked is in sin and can expect Jesus to come and war against that church. I don't know about you, but I don't want Jesus to come in war against the church. I don't want Jesus to come and sit in judgment against me. That that is not a war. That is not a a battle that that I am willing to enter into because I know that I'm not going to win that war. Jesus is going to win every single time. And Jesus commands his warning here is why it is absolutely crucial we deal with sin in our congregation and we do so in a timely manner. Jesus desires his church to be pure and if the church will not seek its own purity, Jesus will remove its lampstand by warring against it. Jesus will quite literally turn out the lights. He will close up shop. He will snuff out any ability we have to be a gospel witness in the community. A church that is unwilling to practice biblical church discipline and call its members to repentance is a church that will eventually go to war with Jesus. And Jesus commands a church to, to deal with sin despite the cultural climate in which that church is located. The church at Pergamum could, couldn't have been in, in the worst location. They were located in, in, in Satan's throne room. But Jesus doesn't give them a pass. He doesn't say, man, I understand. You know, Satan's throne room is set up here. All of this idolatry, all of these things are, are taking place around you. I understand why you have capitulated and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna let that slide. No, he exhorts the church as a whole to deal with the sin in their midst, to deal with false teachers who are leading the church to capitulate and to deal with those who are living in immorality. And then as we move on here in verse 17, we learn that that a church that deals with false teachers and unrepentant sin, a church that that does not capitulate, is a church that is aligned with God's will. And a church aligned with God's will receives access to Jesus' future kingdom. Look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, if you remember, manna was this, was this food that was supernaturally given to the Israelites every single day for 40 years in the wilderness to sustain them. Every single morning, it was there on the ground. And God sustained them with that. It was during these wilderness wanderings where God is sustaining the people that, that, that Balak hired Balaam to come and, and, to, and to curse the Israelites. It's during this time that, that the Lord is providing bread from heaven for them to sustain them. And if you remember from our study in the book of John, Jesus is said to be the bread of life who has come down from heaven to provide life to all of those who believe in him. 
Now, if we pull all of these ideas together, what we see is that that Jesus, as opposed to the false gods, as opposed to the false teachers, is the only one who can provide us with true life. The white stone is thought to refer to, to a tessera, which served as a token of admission to a banquet. You had the white stone, you got into the banquet, pointing to Jesus's future banquet that you would read about later in the book of Revelation. The new name most likely refers to the name of the one who conquers. It's the, it's the name that Jesus gives as they enter into his kingdom. Now taken as a whole, we learn that, that, that the one who conquers, the one who stands firm, is promised entrance into Jesus' future kingdom where they have an intimate relationship with Jesus and they will be sustained by Jesus for all of eternity. Now, I don't know about you, but, but eternal life with Jesus is better than anything that, that false teachers could offer. It's better than any pleasure, any immoral act could offer. It is better than every sin imaginable. As a church, we should want everyone in our congregation to experience eternal life with Jesus and his eternal kingdom, which is why a church that is aligned with God's will does not tolerate false teaching and immorality. Instead, it speaks the truth in love. It calls false teachers to the truth. Those caught up in immorality forsake those practices as well as it warns others not to capitulate to the culture for comfort's sake. Nothing is better than life with Jesus in his eternal kingdom. Not physical protection, not sexual gratification, not cultural acceptance. Nothing is greater than life with Jesus in his eternal kingdom. In a church with that is aligned with with God's will, understands that nothing is greater than Jesus and it does not capitulate to the culture. It doesn't tolerate false teachers and and immorality. Instead, it, it deals with sin. It calls its members to repent so that they will experience Jesus, they will experience life with Jesus instead of war with Jesus. Dealing with sin is not easy. It is it is not comfortable, but but what Jesus calls us to do, Jesus calls us to do things that are not uncomfortable. And Jesus dealt with sin in in a very uncomfortable way. Jesus was placed on a, a mock trial. He was then brutally beaten. A crown of thorns was, was pressed down on Jesus' head. He was nailed to a cross. His hands and his feet were, were literally pierced. He was hung on a cross. Every breath was a struggle for him as he slowly suffocated. And not to mention all of the Father's wrath for for all of the sins of mankind were poured out on Jesus to satisfy God's wrath. And then before Jesus was removed from the cross, his side was pierced with a spear. Jesus dealt with sin. And we can, and we should as well. We should deal with it corporately, not allowing false teachers and idolaters and unrepentant sinners to go unchecked, as well as we should deal with it individually by repenting of our sins and believing in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. And so what will it be? Will we be a church that tolerates false teaching and and immorality? Or or will we be a church that deals with with sin by practicing biblical church discipline? Will we be a church that is aligned with God's will? Or will we be a church that goes to war against Jesus? 
And what about you, the, the individual? Have you turned to Jesus as your Lord and, and Savior? Have you repented of your, your rebellion against God? Do you believe that Jesus alone provides you with eternal life, that he alone has paid the penalty for your sins, that he alone is the only one who can provide you with access to God, Amen. to the banquet. He alone is the only one who will give you the hidden manna, the white stone, a new name. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn and align yourself with God's will. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, God. We thank you for the challenges that it provides us, God. And Lord, as we have walked through this today and we'll continue to walk through your word, Lord, help us, God. Help us to repent where we need to repent. Help us to stand firm where we need to stand firm, Lord. Help us, God, to always look to you. There are people here today who do not know you or people watching online who do not know you, Lord. We ask, God, we ask that you might work in their life, that you might draw them to yourself, that, that they might come to see that, that you are better than anything else and that you are the only way, the only way to eternal life. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.